Hey everyone, thanks for checking out the 21 Gun Podcast. I am your host, Kevin Sullivan. A little return to our roots tonight. We're doing a one-on-one interview. This is how we began. This is how I started maybe three years ago. Um, I'm going to say like the first 50 to 75 episodes were just one-on-one interviews, and I really, really enjoyed doing um, this format. Uh, COVID hit, of course, and then we started doing live streams because it just kind of connected more with people. And then we just sort of stuck with that because people liked it. Uh, We still do live streams every Sunday night, 8 p.m. Head over to 21gun.net. Spell that out, 21gun.net. You'll see all the links to to where we stream. Tonight's interview is with a woman named Michelle Black. She is a mother of two boys and a gold star wife. She has a background in environmental sciences and horticulture, is an experienced snowboarder, and has a passion for writing. She lives out in Washington State. Um, she is a gold star widow. Her her husband, Brian Black, was unfortunately killed uh, in Africa back in 2017. You may be familiar with this incident. Maybe you're not. Uh, I wasn't, to be honest with you. I think I saw a, a documentary not too long ago, but that was kind of the only background I had. Uh, with this incident. And it's it's strange because we are all familiar with Black Hawk Down. We're all familiar with Robert Ridge. We're all familiar with Tora Bora, um, the Lone Survivor incident. These are big incidents uh, that occurred. They're battles and they kind of became part of um, military history and tradition. This was um, ODA 3212. ODA is the, I believe it's Operational Detachment Alpha, basically the Al- uh, A-teams with the Green Berets. They were working in Africa Uh, in the Tongo Tongo region, and uh, they were ambushed back in 2017. Four team members were killed, including um, uh, Michelle's husband, Brian. Uh, Then there was cover-up, and that's the part that is probably why this story isn't as well-known as it should be. Um, Michelle goes into detail about, you know, why that cover-up happened. It seems to be it was more political on the level of getting promotions for the uh, field grade officers and the general officers who were involved in the incident. Um, but if you want to learn about it, which I really, I highly suggest you do, read her book. It's called Sacrifice, A Gold Star Widow's Fight for the Truth. Uh, and the interesting thing about this book is when she decided to write it, that the surviving team members uh, of ODA 3212 um, would only speak with her. And, and she basically says, and I believe if I look in the cover here, um, She says, I often say I'd prefer to hear the ugly truth than a beautiful lie. In the year following my husband's death, I was told plenty of both. So, and we talk about this during the interview. She she says straight out that she would rather know every painful last minute of her husband's life than be told a lie. And and she spells it out in this book. She goes through very detailed um, description of what happened uh, with ODA 3212. And it's an important story, and I think you should definitely read it because it is, um, it is part of military history and the soft community. Um, and it kind of shows you the sacrifice that goes beyond um, the service member. You know, whenever someone is killed or injured, there's a family behind that. There's children, there's parents, there's sisters, there's brothers. There's there's a whole group of people that are affected by these incidents. And um, she goes into great detail with that. So fantastic book, fantastic guest. I really enjoyed having her on and I hope uh, you enjoy the show as well. So without further ado, Michelle Black.
one thing we say at the end of every show is, you know, if people like you didn't take your time to talk with us, then there would be no show, right? There would be no uh, 21 Gun or really any of the other thousands of shows that are out there. I did a little research on you, um, this is what I do, and you've been on quite a few shows. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I saw you were on Mike Ritland, who's, um, uh, he's been on this show a few times, really nice guy. Uh, just recently, right? We just recently. On, uh, I was just this summer in, uh, I want to say July. Okay. He's, yeah. he's fantastic. Were you there in studio yeah. down in Texas with him? I was. Yeah. Oh, I'm jealous. I'm jealous. Whereabouts in Texas is he? Gosh, it was just outside of Dallas. Okay. Um, I can't remember exactly. I want to say Rockwall. Does that sound correct? I've only been to Texas once, so that was my one trip. (laughs) Texas is, I love it. I was stationed down there for, gosh, I think it was 18 months. And I always said I wanted to go back. And then I met a few, um, actually uh, one Green Beret, his name was Andrew Marr. And we hit it off really well. And he's got a, a place up in Houston. Long story, we work with TBI and everything. And he's been trying to like recruit me to come down there and finally move and uh, it's hard to say no. Texas is like, it's like the a separate country within the country with their own culture and their own food and their own everything. It's, I, I, I just love it. We, we might end up going there. Cause right now, right now we're in North Carolina and no offense to anyone from North Carolina, but there's really, there's nothing here. I mean, there's stuff here, but there's no like culture. No one walks around, you know, with the, uh, down in Texas, they have the Texas flag and everything. No one does that here. You're from, you're from, uh, uh, I'm from Washington? California. California. Well, I live in Washington right now, but I grew up in California and okay. I've lived, uh, in Washington as we do now, um, Colorado and North Carolina. So, oh yeah, yeah that's right. Yep. I had the similar feeling about North Carolina where yeah. I love the people and I liked a lot of just the, um, the prices, obviously, and the room, you know, the space, mm-hmm. being able to buy property, you know, oh, yeah. that whole thing. But yeah, the, the it was a huge culture shock for me. Okay. Um, yeah, especially from the from the West Coast. <laughs> yeah, East East Coast is definitely a, a a weird thing like that. So let's do that. Let's um, and again, uh, having you know read your book and looked at all your your old um, interviews, I figured. If if people don't know the story of ODA thirty two twelve yet, there's plenty of places to to learn about uh, that situation. Uh, let's let's find out about you and and your motives for writing the book and what the book did for you and did for others. And we'll kind of go that route uh, for this one. I hope you don't mind. So you grew up in California. Whereabouts? Um. So we kind of. Um, I feel like I was raised in two places because I when I was half my life was essentially spent in this ski town called Mammoth Lakes, California. I was born in a little town called Bishop. And then um, we moved to kind of a country town called Tehachapi, California. And that's where my dad's business was. And then I also um, kind of moved back and forth because my grandparents had a home up in Mammoth and a lot of my old friends were up there. And so eventually after college, I went back to Mammoth and um taught snowboarding and i did a lot of competing and that kind of thing and then i met my husband there i met brian there 
Okay. I like that the name Mammoth conjures up like big mountains. I don't know why. Maybe icebergs. I, don't know. Yeah, I know that's and, not and up in California, right. but. <laughs> yeah, well, in the Sierras, the Mammoth Lake sits at about 9,000 feet. Um, oh, nice. And so, yeah, the, the mountain range, the Sierras are huge. The Pacific Crest Trail runs through there. Um, there's some huge mountains. Some of the biggest mountains actually are in California. There's one 14,000 foot peak not far from Mammoth Lakes called Mount Whitney that we used to hike. Um, so yeah, when we get snow up there, we would get a good 10 or 20 foot snowpack. Okay. So it, it was yeah. a very big ski town. Gosh, you don't think of that with, uh, when you think California, especially when you're an East coaster like me, you think like LA, San Francisco, uh, where else? I get San Diego, but you forget yeah. that like there's a lot of land over there, and there's a lot of rural, um, you know, really rural places. Not all a big city or anything like that. We, me and my yeah. wife, were um, in New York for almost a year of our life, and people don't realize that too. It, it always surprises them when people hear New York, they think of the city, but you drive two hours away, and there's nothing. Like there's nothing. You are out in the middle of the woods, snow. If something happens, the nearest hospital is hours away, and it's New York. Um, so yeah, that that's all over the country. Uh, so you're an outdoors woman, an outdoorsman <laughs> your whole life. Yeah, okay. yeah, very much. I grew up. I mean, I think I started skiing when I was maybe two or three, okay, and switched to snowboarding at eleven, and um, you know, also did ran cross country and track, and did a lot of trail running all through high school and college. Um, and yeah, just in fact, when I met Brian, it was a ton of backpacking and that's what we were into at the time. So yeah, a lot of outdoors. Sure. Do you still, do you still have time to do that stuff? Do you get outside? And you know, I'm those? trying to acclimate to Washington and doing all that, oh, right. rain, which is totally yeah. foreign to me. Um, and I'm trying to kind of learn this area. My kids' grandparents are here, um, okay. Brian's parents. And so that's why we're here. But I don't know the area yet or where yeah. you even do that. I've started taking them skiing. And um, so we have done quite a bit of skiing and snowboarding. So that's I haven't skied in like 25 years. Uh, I grew up in New Hampshire, so we did a lot of skiing there. And okay. I, I don't know what happened. I just never got back to it. I think there's skiing here in North Carolina. I just never checked it out. And it's it's changed. The sport has changed. You know, we had these skinny oh, yeah. long skis and now they're fat and hourglass shaped. And I, I don't think it would, I would have to relearn the whole skill and I just don't have time for that. So I kind of oh, yeah. miss it. I kind of miss it. Plus it's good to, uh, it's good for your mental health. It's good for everything. Getting out and doing stuff is really good. Especially look, look at what's going, what's going on with COVID and, the uh, um, uh, vitamin D levels. That's one of the big thing that, that I work in medicine on the, and on the side. And, um, yeah, it's like they're telling people to stay in and the best thing to do for you is go outside, get sun, let your body, uh, I don't know, have a chance to be human, not be in front of a screen all day. What oh, yeah. what was family like, uh, family life like for you growing up? Oh, gosh, I had a huge family. Um, <laughs> yeah. I grew so in Tehachapi. So eventually when I was born, we all lived in one little street. Mm -hmm. in um, Mammoth Lakes, just outside of town in Crawley Lake. So there literally was one little street that went next to the highway and there were maybe 10 houses along it. And my family occupied at least, I think around five of those houses. Oh, wow. <laughs> so when we moved to, to Hatchapi, which a lot of people call Little Texas, it's very arid. It's just up in the mountains outside of the Mojave Desert. 
Um, and so that's a little farming town and my whole family moved there. I have 26 cousins, um, wow. tons of aunts and uncles, and we all moved to this little town. And so it was just like, uh, you didn't really need friends. You had family all the yeah. time everywhere. <laughs> so, um, it was interesting. It, it was a lot of fun. So that- that, that's something me and my wife talk about all the time because uh, we're down here and her parents are in Erie. My parents are, are still in New Hampshire. Well, half in New Hampshire, half in Florida. And it's same thing. You know, the, the cousins there, it's not here. It's just us here. And it's, you know, we like where we live, but in a way it's sad because uh, it, it's, it's just fun. It's great growing up when you have these people that aren't even, they're not just friends. They also have that, that DNA that makes every family a bit weird. <laughs> and you guys all have that in common up up in uh washington do you have much family up there or is it just uh your in-laws it's just my in-laws and brian's brother and his wife um and we had talked about moving to tehachapi but brian had always wanted to come back and retire here and have the kids raised around his parents okay and um, my kids are really close with his parents especially after brian passed away his dad Mm -hmm. came and stayed with us for a long while and his mom would always come and stay with us in the summer so they're especially close to his parents so when this happened it just seemed like you know the right thing to do is for them health you know mentally um and emotionally is to bring them close to those grandparents is it is it a, a culture shock for you i mean you already talked about getting used to the area but to to you know leave the would you say it was 26 cousins <laughs> <laughs> yeah well you know i think for me it was a huge culture shock to move away from that when i was 18 and that took me a long time um to adjust but once i adjusted i never went back most of my family members got married and moved back or married and never left okay. so for me it's actually harder to go back because it's almost like going back to my small hometown and going back into all the same stuff, all the, all the same, just things that are always, that were always going on, you know, yeah. like the, the family parties and the one guy who does this and the one guy who does this. And, <laughs> yep. you know, so it's just like, I don't have to um, get involved in all the chaos, you know? Mm-hmm. And while I loved it as a kid, as an adult, it becomes, it just becomes different, <laughs> you know, it's yeah, a lot more yeah. complicated. Um, and so for me, it's, it's definitely a big adjustment up here as far as getting used to the weather. Um, but coming back to the West coast from North Carolina, it it just, it was like, okay, I'm I'm back home, um, culturally. So, um, that's been nice, but yeah, the, the rain and the overcast and the gray, and then to come in and instantly have it flip over into the COVID lockdown mode, Uh, I'm just like so not used to that you know that's rough and yeah. and people don't realize i bring this up a lot uh is that the west coast even though we share a country is almost as foreign i mean almost as far away as like london england is from where we are here and you know yeah we have the same american culture but it is it is very different the the two sides are very different uh ironically i was looking down because we were supposed to do this this interview gosh, I want to say a month ago, maybe even longer. So some of these questions are old. I haven't looked at them in a while. And the next question I have written down uh, is that reading your book, and and this is ironic how we just ended up talking about this, but in your book, uh, I picked up a theme of family, you know, whether it was um, the the SF unit, the ODA, or whether it was uh, you and and Brian and your family, or 
um, you know, your kids, your in-laws, or even at the beginning, you spoke of family a lot. Uh, it's an, it's a theme. So what comes to your mind when I say the word family? And it might be a redundant question, but, uh, still want to hit it. Um, a lot of noise, a lot of laughter, um, you know, fun, warmth. It's just, yeah, it's, it's everything. Um, it's the only thing that really matters. Yeah. Has your definition of family changed over the years? No, I think it's just, um, if anything, it's grown, grown more solid. You know, I was raised to be fiercely loyal to your family, even Mm -hmm. when they're wrong. (laughs) So, (laughs) um, you know, with that many cousins, it's like if somebody turns on your cousin and they're not within the, you know, within the group, then you defend him and then you go deal with him later. But, um, you know, so so growing up, it was that just fierce loyalty. And once you committed to somebody that they're your family, then that's it. You go, you know, you fight to the death for them. And so, um, yeah, that's, that's just, I think the only thing that's changed for me over time is, you know, with marriage, you're choosing someone to bring into your family. Mm-hmm. And when it came to these team members, it became choosing people who uh, in any other circumstances, I wouldn't have chosen as family, but you know, my husband, they were his family when he was away sure. from home. So when he passed away, they became my family. Absolutely. Um, yeah, that's something it's very hard uh, to describe to, to non-veterans, except I think in your situation, you, you probably understand it quite well, is um, the, the organization we used to work for, Reverend Warriors, that's one of their things. We just say family a lot. Um, because even though you don't know anyone, you all kind of shared a common um, sacrifice, a common hardships, common uh, good times, common bad times. And it just makes veterans. So when a veteran's in a, say a, a boardroom, right. in a meeting full of non-veterans and, you know, maybe someone says something funny or you find something, you got to keep all that in because I can guarantee you, no one's going to understand your humor. No one's going to understand your, your directness, except another room full of veterans. So, um, yeah, that's, that's interesting how, how you kind of adopted that, that SF community. And I, I have a bunch of questions, uh, about that kind of a little bit down the road. Uh, still, we're, we're still trying to build the, the foundation of who Michelle Black is. So the next question is, uh, when you were a child, what did you want to be when you grew up? I think I grew up in a very, very traditional family where the women did not work. Okay. So I knew my expectation was to become a wife and mother, and that was it. And so for me, there wasn't a, what do you want to be? Unless it was like, oh, ballerina or, you know, something (laughs) totally random. Um, So I didn't really think about that. I mean, I was the first woman in my family to graduate high school. Um, My dad had his GED. My mom never graduated. And my grandma, great grandma, all the way back um, on my mom's side, never graduated. Mm-hmm. So when I graduated and then there was college as an option, it was kind of talked about like, well, you do that as something to fall back on in case your marriage, when you get married and have kids doesn't work out. Mm-hmm. It wasn't with the goal of um, really working or finding a job in my family. It was, you know, for the women to, to work was not a good thing. If they had kids, once they had kids, their, their job was to 
raise babies and that was it. So, um, for me, uh, I was not in a hurry to be that person, Sure. but I wouldn't say that I necessarily had goals. I had this hidden goal of one day, maybe being a writer or, you know, Mm -hmm. doing something big. And I felt like I was supposed to do something bigger, but I didn't feel like I was necessarily allowed to be. Um, so when I went to college and I got all this freedom, it was interesting because I began to just enjoy my independence. And Mm -hmm. so from there, I was not in a hurry to get anyone would tell you, they just all decided I was not interested in men because I wouldn't date. I wouldn't, I was not interested. I would just (laughs) do my own thing all the time because I did not want to end up married or pregnant. And so I just went all over, finished college, went up skiing, and did not want Brian or anybody else to pay me any attention. I wanted to do my own thing because I just saw that as being shackled. Sure. And everyone else in my family, my age and younger, were they were all married. Um, I was pretty much the oldest one to get married at 20. I want to say I was, was it 26 or 27 when I got married. And that was okay. old in my family. Very, very old. <laughs> I should have been married by like somewhere between 20 and 23. So, um, yeah. And I just didn't care. You know, I, I would have stayed, I didn't really plan on ever getting married. Um, I, yeah, I actually developed epilepsy at 18. So in my Mm -hmm. mind, I figured I'd have a seizure and die by the time I was 25. So what did it matter? I might as well go enjoy life. That was kind of my outlook. So yeah. at 25, I was like, well, that didn't work out. So <laughs> you Ryan's survived. following me around, so maybe I'll date him. So, yeah. Um, well, they say, what's that that saying? Life is what happens when you're busy making other plans. Uh, <laughs> and it's it's so true. It's so true when you look at that. You, you had mentioned that the freedom that you get when you're 18 and you go off to college. For some, it's good. Uh, and it sounds like you were very, at least somewhat focused uh, on on something else. I was the opposite. I got that bit of freedom, and I don't know how I survived. To be honest with you, I ended up having to join the military. So there goes. Uh, <laughs> it kind of tells you what kind of what kind of uh, freedom or how much that freedom uh, helped me out. Um, so, and I guess it brings us right up to that that point is. Uh, you weren't you weren't making these plans, and if I remember correctly, you were at a ski lodge. You were a, a bartender. Um, I was a snowboard instructor. Okay. When, when you met Brian, for some reason, why do I remember a bar in the book? It's, I read it last night. Yeah. Well, we, uh, I met him at church and he was actually dating one of my coworkers. Okay. And, um, then he showed up at one of the end of the year parties and everyone was drinking, but I was on crutches. Uh, So me drinking wasn't going to happen. And so I went okay. and hung out with him. Yeah, just because he was not really drinking much. So I went and had a beer with him. And uh, that's kind of when we started talking. Yeah. Yeah, that stuff sort of happens. I met my <laughs> I shouldn't even say this. I don't think I've ever said it on air. But uh, I met my wife at a, we called them uh, captain's parties. So when you go from lieutenant to captain in a flying squadron, you got to remember there's like the majority of the people are, are officers. So it's a really weird dynamic. And when you go from a second, no, I mean a first lieutenant to a captain, that's your biggest pay increase in like, gosh, until you're at least a, well, I guess a major, but it's like those first 15 years, that's your first big bump. And, and usually everyone pulls that together and they have a big party. Well, my wife's brother was also in the squadron. You can kind of see where that went. They had a captain's party at the beach 
And I'm I was brand new to the squadron. I'm a lieutenant. I'm walking around just not knowing anyone. I see this girl over by the keg, so I went over. <laughs> I went over and beer brings us together. Beer brings us yeah. together. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so you were on crutches. Uh, you met him, and your book goes into a lot of detail about um, about Brian and and you know what type of person he was and, and growing up. But he wasn't he wasn't in the military yet when you met him, in fact, it wasn't for some time after that. Did, did you have any inkling? Did he ever say, Hey, you know, someday I want to serve or, or how did that work out? Well, it's funny because he was a military brat. So he'd moved, his dad was a Marine. So he'd moved okay. all over, you know, lived in Germany. So I knew that background and he always told me stories about growing up and all the trouble he'd get into because he wanted to be a Navy SEAL and, <laughs> you know, and, and all these little operations he'd run as a teenager with his buddies and, mm -hmm. you know, always coming up with some mischief. But, um, you know, we hadn't discussed it beyond that. But anyone who met Brian would always make comments like, you're going to be one of those guys, you know, super secret, <laughs> squirrel, super secret squirrel one day, like, you know, CIA or FBI or Green Beret or whatever. And, and you're going to sure. be overseas doing something, you know. Um, yeah. So everybody kind of knew that about him. And I think in the back of my mind, I always had a feeling that at some point it, it would probably come down to that because it's just who he was. Sure. Yeah, yeah that tends to be a, a calling for for people in the profession of arms. Um, and also, I mean, I'll tell you, having the 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 family background, the grandparents, the parents, you know, it's probably the reason why I joined, except for the fact I, I had no other options really. But, uh, you know, with all my family being in the military, it kind of just seemed like the next logical step. Um, here's a question that, uh, I kind of jumped over and I, I just want to get your take on it. I, I used to like getting into the deep metaphysical parts of life. Do you believe that meeting your, your husband was random or do you think it was, uh, I don't know, a uh, collision course with fate. Do you, are you a fatalist, I guess is what they call it, or are you, uh, let's see where the ball lands. I think that, you know, I wouldn't say that it's meant to be like that, you know, there's kind of how people would always, I'd always hear, you know, among my friends in the church, oh, there's the one. And I don't believe that at all. Mm -hmm. I do believe that, um, you have a choice in everything, but I I do believe that everything happens. I don't know if I'd say for a reason. I just, I think that, I think that our, our paths were meant to cross, but that doesn't mean that I had to choose them or not. And okay. I think that when we cross paths with people, we have those moments where we know there's a choice and we can walk away or we can stay. And sometimes we walk away and that's a bad choice. And sometimes we stay and that's a bad choice. Sure. But, yeah. um, yeah, I, I do think that, that our crowd, our, our paths were meant to cross. And when they did, I think we both made the right choice. So. It's, you can lay in bed at night and think, and I do, I do this myself is, you know, what if I chose this? What if I chose that? The fact that I was in North Carolina was such a random chance, uh, 
and I just randomly chose to go to the party where I met my wife? Or what if, you know, you choose to live in this neighborhood or instead of that neighborhood? Or what if Brian decided to, or, or what if, I don't know how the structure of the special forces works, but what if he went to one unit instead of another unit? You know, what friends would you have? I mean, there's, you can yeah. think about that, but then you also have to think that this is a decision and this is a path that you wouldn't be on had you made a different choice. And you, as far as I'm concerned, I don't know if I'm a fatalist, but I'm more of a, it, it, the chips are going to fall where they fall. And I, I, and I'm definitely not, I don't think anything is pre what's that word for preconceived or predestined uh, predestined. No, no, no. I think you definitely, uh, you definitely have choices. There's a great book by, um, gosh, I can see his face and I can't think he's on Joe Rogan all the time. It's called, uh, Oh, that's going to bug me. Uh, anyway, uh, Free Will. It's called Free Will. And I can't remember the name of the, the darn, but really good book. And he talks about how really there is no free will. And from the moment, really, you can trace your moment in time where you are right now all the way back to the Big Bang. And everything was predetermined. And uh, almost like you hit a billiards table and the balls go where they're going to go. Those are actually mathematically going in that direction. I'm going down a real deep rabbit hole here, but <laughs> this is what I do. This is what I do when I try to fall asleep at night. Um, so, and I guess we're going to make a big jump here, but you know we can't <laughs> we can't go through the entire book uh, in an hour. Uh, so you got married, you had children. One of your children had special needs, and and that played a a role into his decision enlisting. Um. It did. You know, there was there was a whole bunch of things that kind of led to that. Okay. Um, one one thing was in two thousand eight. You know, there there was the um, uh, financial. Oh crisis. yeah. Yep. And that was huge because what was happening was Brian was playing online poker for a living. <laughs> really. And, and it, making good money. So I mean, we used to call. Um, because of my seizures, I was having all sorts of issues with Ezekiel um, when I was pregnant with him. And so we called him our $40,000 baby because insurance okay. wouldn't cover everything. Ugh, and okay. so it literally cost us that much out of pocket. And so um, we paid for that and managed to still live up in this expensive ski area and be just fine. But um Brian had gone straight from college to online poker. So he had no background um, in his area of study. So he'd never had worked a job with his bachelor of, you know, he had a, bus- he had a business degree. Okay. So when he was hitting burnout um, with the poker and then when Obama came into office, he began to tighten um, all the rules on internet gambling. So it mm-hmm. became became very dangerous as far as where you put your money and as far as banking and how you got your money onto and out of these, uh, onto these sites and off of them. And so it became too risky. And so Brian couldn't really play poker anymore without taking huge risks. And right. he, was, he was tired of it. So he decided, okay, the best thing for us to do is we moved up with his parents temporarily and he began to look for work and literally could not get a job because he was either overqualified or underqualified for everything. He, he had a bachelor's degree, so they wouldn't hire him at a warehouse. Um, mm-hmm. He had a bachelor's degree, but no work experience, so they wouldn't hire him in his field. So we reached a point where it was, he was just like, I, I don't know what to do. Either you go back to work 
um, or I go back or I join the army or something. Um, but I had never worked in my field either. <laughs> right. We were still instructors, you know? <laughs> so, um, that's when it was like, you know what, you've always wanted to do this, like, go for it, do whatever you want. Like I have to take care of Ezekiel. And now we had a new infant. So it was like, what do I care at this point? Was, was he so, pushing 30 at this point? He was. Yeah. Okay. I want to say he was either 27 or 28. Oh, when we got married, he was of... younger. So, you know, I yeah. like, he was like four or five years younger than me. So, oh, okay. okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, so, he probably, did he get a lot of heat in boot camp for, they always pick, they always find someone that's different, tall people, old people, oh, yeah. small people. And that becomes the target. Did he take a but lot of, he loved it. That was oh, the yeah. kind of thing that he loved. He, he would purposely do <laughs> things so they would pick on him because oh, he just, he was a beast. He was, you know, six two two thirty when we met he, he had done all of these like wrestling camps all these famous wrestling camps and and he was into um gosh he was a when I met him, he actually told me he was a cage fighter and I had no clue what that was. I thought that was like, you know, you swing from a cage in a club and fight to entertain That's people. And I thought, Why would you Close, me? but not really. <laughs> yeah. But um, so, yeah, he was into cage fighting and MMA. So for him being challenged on that level, he loved it. And that's kind of okay. when I think he first started to go, yeah, as soon as I can, I'm going to. I'll move into special forces and, and he always wanted to, uh, the next biggest, best challenge. That's kind of who he sure. was. That's a big challenge, a legendary unit. Um, so for recruits indoctrination into the military life is a fire hose, right? You're, you're living and breathing it in boot camp. Um, it, it's just, it becomes ingrained who you are. It actually takes a little bit to get that out of you. If it ever does, sometimes it doesn't as a mill spouse, are you just kind of thrust into this world into what a BX is and the gate guard and all that? Is there any sort of, and this sounds like a silly question and I'm saying it out loud, but I, I get, is there anything that helps indoctrinate you? I don't know if that's the right word into, into what it means to be a mill spouse, what it means to be on a base and, and all that stuff. I think it was a very different experience for me than it would be for most women because several things i was not raised anywhere near military so this was like stepping into a foreign world for me i, sure. I had no idea when brian's like hey run to the class six which he grew up <laughs> with that term i had no clue what he's talking about i'm like what's mm -hmm. a class six and where do i find it and i'm thinking like little tiny office building with like a desk and they have something special there and he's like no that's the alcohol store on base like, yep. <laughs> the gas station. like right so you know everything i had to learn this whole new language but also i was in my 30s by then so i mm -hmm. was let's see probably 31 or 32 when we moved out to colorado and we're on our first base and so for me, um, but we didn't live on base. We never lived on base. So for me, I lived my life like I always had, but I did go on and, and learn all these things as far as, um, you know, the, the commissary and the PX and the class six and getting introduced to that and meeting all the other women in the unit, the other wives in the unit and realizing like, I'm the oldest one. Um, our kids are all about the same because they started a lot younger than I did. And um, like, it just, it, it was just a whole nother mind flip and mindset. Um, but I found that the women that I met were so much more um, flexible and 
um, warm and inviting and, and they knew how to make, you know, anybody they met feel welcome and, you know, easily made friends. And for me, it was really interesting because everywhere else I'd lived before were very small town, very um, clicky because you all knew everybody for forever. And so it, it was interesting to move into that military spouse world where they all were just very kind and thoughtful and, and welcoming and um, supportive of one another. Sure. So that, that was amazing. Did, did the culture change at all? And again, we're making a big jump here, but uh, did it change at all going from regular army to special forces? I assume the biggest thing would be you, you don't see him as much because, I mean, I would assume you never yeah, see I him. Mean, there's, yeah, there's that. Also, a lot of the women that I met in special forces, they reminded me a lot more. Their situation was a lot more like us. All of us lived off base um, for the most part. We all were doing our own thing. We might meet up here and there for, for things, but we were all a lot more just um we all it just it was different we it felt very um yeah we just the women i met were a lot more like me and i don't know sure. how to explain that yeah i would say i would say probably because sf guys are all very similar and and i mean i guess like begets like right so uh I don't know. That's how I would think of it. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Um, you also got to remember too, you know, when you start getting into levels of, you know, special forces or the, the Ranger regiment or in the air force, the CCTs and things like that, you're, you're getting to the doctorate level of the profession of arms, right? The, the peak of those, those, uh, uh, professions and you're going to have older people. Uh, and by older, you're talking military, older, right? 28 to 35 versus 18 to 22. Older, um, it, it's much smarter, uh, much more career driven. So I, I think that's probably why uh, I would assume. I don't know. I'm, I might just be coming up with something there, but uh, that would sound like. I, you're and, probably and, right. I mean, I knew some wives that were PAs. Some of them were um and they were all, all by then most of the wives if they'd been working they were in these you know upper level professional careers sure and um or they were like me they had a kid who was special needs and so they were you know working full time just advocating for their child and and very involved at school and and all the things going on um yeah where did where did you live uh when you were at Bragg were you over in the Fateful side or Southern Pines we were Fayetteville. We were actually right okay. off Ramsey Street near the Walmart. Okay, yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, exactly. Yeah, Brian and I were like, let's move into one of the old cool neighborhoods. So <laughs> um, I actually flew out and bought the house while he was still, um, he was, I think, at, uh, at air assault school or something. Okay. Um, so, yeah, we kind of went two different directions and I went and bought a house out in Fayetteville with a list <laughs> of possible areas and price range. And, uh, yeah, we ended up right there off Ramsey and, uh, Stacy Weaver. So okay. I, I lived out in Southern Pines and it's, that's, there's Rayford. I found a lot of people like to get away from the, the hustle and bustle of a military base. So it was like a 45 minute drive, but it allowed me to go and not be a military officer or not be a flyer for, 
the evenings and then I would go back because route one was right there. And so I could go up and my wife was in Raleigh. And so I could just be a civilian and then come back, go to work, fly airplanes, do all that stuff and then come back and then do that again. And it was, it was really neat. But I, 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 I'll always have a warm feeling about, you know, Fort Bragg, Pope Air Force Base, that whole area. Um, I never disliked it. I know it can be a little rough, especially with like, you got the, like I said, the young 18 year old recruits that are, are running around there. But, um, but yeah, I'll always have a warm side. And we go down every now and then. Uh, in fact, I'm due for a trip because it's so strange. Um, I'm sure you're familiar where Pope was because I'm sure you went out to Green Ramp yeah. when, when he deployed. So uh, my squadron was right near Green Ramp. And I mean, there was so much. It, it was in the height of the Iraq War and Afghanistan War. And there was just so much going on there. And now it's it's shut down. And it's so surreal to drive by and see the squadron that's quiet and just not there anymore and it's like wow there was it it must be how the world war ii people felt when they go to these old airfields that are shut down it's like it, it was something and now it's 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 nothing but yeah I, i'll always have a warm part of my heart for that that area and um continue to go down there um oh yeah so brian being a green beret you had to know that the deployment was coming how did uh, how did that affect your relationship? You know, when you know he's gone all the time in training and now he has to go deploy and probably can't tell you much about where he's going. Um, generally, I did know. Uh, I mean, I knew he wasn't going to tell me everything because there's, you know, classified, you know, things. Sure. But for the most part, I knew they were there by, with, and through mission training. Um, the local Nigerian counter for a counterpart. Um, whatever Nigerian forces. Um, and I knew that they'd go on a few missions that were a little bit something, something more, but, but generally, um, you know, it, it was supposed to be one of the safest deployments during that time period. So it wasn't something I worried about. He, he deployed in 2016 to Marathi, Niger, and their biggest problem that year was cattle thieves. So okay. they weren't exactly, you know, in my mind, going to, um, we weren't dealing with roadside bombs. We weren't sure. dealing with, you know, ambushes at the time being a very common thing. Um, at least not that I was aware of. And at least, and definitely not on American forces. I mean, Black Hawk Down, right? So the Battle right. of Mogadishu was the last big issue on that continent. So you just everybody else was going to Afghanistan. And so Brian going to Africa was a relief. Right. It was just like, Oh, he's, he's going to Africa. We'll see him in a few months. No big thing. So, um, it, you know, if anything, it's, I think at that point, cause you've gone through all the years of Q course and everything else. Mm -hmm. So by that time, I wasn't used to having him home for very long. So when right. he would come home and like, I remember the last time was, um, he'd gotten home in, um, at the end of October, it was actually October, uh, it was Halloween night, uh, 2016. And he pretty much, he'd come home, we'd done a family vacation, then he'd done all his training. And then he was home getting ready for deployment because he was going to deploy in August. So he had this big chunk of time that he was just hanging out. So we went to DC and whatever, and it was great having him home. But I think and you'll notice this with a lot of military wives and me and my um, SF <laughs> um, 
other military, uh, other SF spouses would always mm-hmm. joke around about like, isn't it time you should leave? You know, like <laughs> long enough because um, you get into your routines. And sure. so I did know the deployment was coming up, but it was kind of like, oh, it's about time you go. And, you know, because you're, you're getting um, Brian just always had to be busy. And I think you see that a lot with these SF guys. They've got to be constantly busy and Mm -hmm. if brian wasn't busy he'd find something to do and he'd start up some new business or he'd have a million things going so he was you know remodeling our whole house pretty much and there was a million different things he was building and doing and he'd be up all night working on this and that and it was just like the whole house is up in chaos because he's he's getting bored um so by the time it got to deployment, I was kind of like, good, go. I can clean up all the messes and have a little <laughs> for a few months. And then you'll come back and we'll all be super excited again. And this whole thing will start up. So by the end of six months, you'll be like chomping at the bit to get out of here because it'll be <laughs> driving you nuts to be here. That's actually so, really uh, common. That's a common, um, in the flying world, we deployed a lot, uh, a lot. I mean, we're always gone. And I wasn't married at the time, but I remember a wife. I heard a wife say that uh, we were at a party or something. She goes, isn't it time for you to go <laughs> go on deployment <laughs> again? And and yeah, I, I get that, I guess. That's that's interesting. Um, where, uh, I just lost my train of thought, uh, the deployment. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, another thing I was going to ask, and, and I've heard this said too before, is that a six-month deployment is, you know, so many months figuring out how to be a single parent and negotiate the base and negotiate finance and negotiate whatever else you have to do, uh, when you're a single parent and then you start to excel at that and you're doing great at that. And then suddenly this person is back in your house and you kind of have to refigure out roles and stuff. Was that, was that difficult to do? The biggest thing, the, the most difficult thing, and I have seen this a lot. Um, I've discussed it with a few uh, military men when I'm actually doing some interviews like this is um, the kids. The kids is a very interesting dynamic when you're dealing with men who have deployed to these third world countries and they're coming back in and now their perception of your children is completely different than it was when they left. So American children are, we, you know, I think a lot of times the viewpoint turns to they're spoiled mm-hmm. and they are, but it's more that their innocence has not been spoiled. And so they don't have to work, you know, they don't have to, um, they're not seeing all sorts of tragedy and horror um occur in their lives or in the lives of the people around them you know seeing people shot on the street is not an everyday occurrence for an american child or having family members be blown up while they're walking down the street or you know there's just so many things they aren't faced with starvation um thirst and so for our kids there is this amazing childhood that you don't see in um everywhere else in the world you know they they have magic and and their life is good Mm -hmm. and we we forget that i think when when you deploy you go over and you see these children who they get up at you know the dawn at crack of dawn and they run and they get water for their families and they're helping to farm and they're 
you know, helping make dinner and they're help. there's, they're doing so many things. They're essentially working. And these children are so productive at the age of seven, eight, nine, and your 10 year old can't even, you know, get up and brush his teeth, yeah. you know, and, and that's frustrating. And I think military men, you come home and, and it's, you know, you're, you're going to, you know, fix this. You're going to make your child productive and not useless and, and you don't understand what their problem is. And so there's a lot of that conversation that has to happen between wives and husbands who are just coming home from deployment where there has to be a transition because sure. you're, you're coming in from that combat experience and you're frustrated and you've seen horrible things and you don't understand what's wrong with your kids because you've just seen these kids who are more than capable than they are. But the cost of your kids becoming what those kids are is not something you would ever want your children to experience. And I learned that the hard way when Brian died and my kids told me at nine and 11 years old that there was no Santa Claus. They, I realized that day they had grown up, yeah. that there was no magic left. And um, that's what, you know, that's what the cost is. Yeah. I and think the, the, the toughest part of your book, I, I've read a lot. I've read a lot and I've experienced a lot. Uh, page 43 on your book where, where you talk about, you know, you and I believe it was your father-in-law took your kids to a park and uh, I, I could barely get through that. I mean, it's only a few paragraphs, but it's, it's probably the most uh, brutally honest thing I've read in, in a long time. And I tell people, cause I, I interview a lot of uh, authors and stuff. And I guess one of the questions I, I have with people is the, the honesty is what makes the story or what makes people want to read the story. Uh, how, how difficult was it to relive those moments and to basically bleed it out onto a piece of paper? Um, it's funny because COVID had, um, I, I'd written a lot of it while um, some of the harder, more honest pieces like that one with, with the kids. I had written that not, maybe not even six months after Brian had died. I just was writing about what yeah. happened and trying to keep track of everything so I wouldn't forget. I knew it was important. And um, that was... Obviously, I was still grieving, so so that was hard. I remember just sitting there in, in tears, which is the whole time. And um, sure. that book yeah. was pretty much written that way every time. I would just have to wait until I was alone and the whole house was quiet, and I'd just let myself go back and sit in that moment where I experienced that. And it was... It was insane. Um, and I, you know, I think that was the scariest thing when it came to publishing is realizing other people were going to sit there with me in that real moment. And I thought, yeah. do I really yeah. want people to step that close and see that close to to what I went through and what I still go through at times? And that's a very personal thing to let people see. And, 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 um, I don't know if you'd say criticized, but sometimes criticized, but, uh, um, you know, rate <laughs> review. <Yeah. laughs> so, um, but I felt it was important. So, um, I, I felt that, you know, so many times we hear things, you know, in, 
in relation to military losses um, coming from the civilian world, you know, like, what, why does it matter? What difference does it make? They're just soldiers, mm -hmm. you know? And it's like, no, these are my children's father. You know, this is my mother-in-law's youngest son. Like these are Americans. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes uh, as Americans and as civilians, and I know because I grew up so far from the military, it was just like, oh, that's what they signed up for. Oh, that's, you know, there's soldiers. That's that's what they do. And that, that happens. They die, you know, and just kind of this cavalier, like nonchalant, like not my problem. I didn't sign on the paper. And now having an up close look and it being my, you know, me and my life. And I realized how wrong I was and how important it is to realize that there, you know, especially looking at Afghanistan and the years we were there and um, all the losses and mm -hmm. to realize that there's 20 years, that's an entire generation of children left without a parent. This, this is going to change the entire landscape of our future as Americans, because we're talking about children raised with in single family homes, mm -hmm. you know, broken, you know, because of war and, and the PTSD and, and, it's not just those who are killed that leave their children in affected by by war it's those that come back with severe ptsd and and all of that so i could go on but no no um, it's it, it it makes a lot of sense because you see you know maybe time will have a photograph and i remember this one of a, a child that is at his father's uh, funeral or um, the the widow who's kissing the casket. And, and you're right. It's point. I think it's point four five percent was the last number I heard over the last 20 years of the population that has served. Uh, and we're not talking about the Vietnam. We're talking about the uh, global war on terror. And it, it you know, 9-11 happened. Um, people were were kind of, you know, pumped up for revenge for a good year after that. And then everyone went on their way. There was really no personal sacrifice except for the people that that stood up and volunteered and, and did these things. And I, I am under the, I, I am the type of person that says, even if it's the most painful thing in the world, you can, you can block it out, I suppose, and pretend it doesn't happen and pretend it didn't happen. Or you can look at it and realize that uh, everything that we enjoy in life, there's there's always something that could be worse, you know, and, and it sounds, I don't think it's morbid at all. I think it, it gives you appreciation, um, especially for the folks who, who haven't, and I realize I didn't even say the title of your book. It's uh, for those who are listening, it's sacrifice a gold star widow's fight for truth or for the truth. Um, and the, the book is actually, I want to say it's two books in one, but it, it's, it, it's not like, part A and part B, although I suppose it is to, to some extent, but it's the book of your, your experience and, and yours and, and Brian's story. And it's also the story of, um, ODA 3212. Uh, I thought, I, I think it was again, your, your publicist, Julie, Julia, Julia. Yeah. Julia. All right. I'm always going to get that wrong. Um, she had said that to write this book, uh, or I'm sorry, to, to tell the story of ODA 3212, the surviving members only wanted to to speak to you. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And what, what was what was that all about? The trust? Or? It, it was a trust thing. We had actually discussed it a few times and um, they, you know, 
what happened was right after they were ambushed, they came home and I, I even say in my book, you know, they came home to a, an ambush of a whole different type. So they came under um, investigation by AFRICOM and were told that, hey, you know, we want you guys to, they basically were put under gag orders, essentially, you know, we don't want you to speak. There's going to be some classified information. So we don't want you to discuss what happened at all until after the investigation is complete. Um, and so they couldn't tell us anything, the guys on the ground. Ironically, the officers, um, one officer in particular came and spoke to us about it, about what happened. And it was just, oh, they were on a routine patrol when they were ambushed and we can tell you more in the future. turns out he was involved in everything, um, including the approvals for the second and third missions. So, um, they were able to talk to us. Um, but what ended up happening was then the media, um, a few months into the investigation, starts saying that they're getting leaks from the investigative team and that this group, this ODA 3212, are a bunch of cowboys who went rogue. So then, you know, that spreads across media and they're just being hammered. Uh, pictures and names are being released of guys on the team who are still um, active, which is insane for Green Berets to have their names and faces released on TV. So that's everywhere. And then to top it off, um, head cam footage of the deaths were released. And that went across, that was released by CBS News and then spread across all forms of social media. Um, so it just was one thing after another. And again, throughout the investigation, the team was being attacked by the media. So when all was said and done, and it became clear that uh, the captain of the team, Captain Perizzini, was going to be blamed and punished. And then they were even discussing doing a second investigation and possible article, what is it, 15s or 15-6 through the UCMJ, where they were considering um, that with the guys. So by then the guys were just like, we're going to have to lawyer up. Um, We don't know what to do. We don't trust anyone. And so that's when um, I told them, I said, well, your gag orders are lifted by now because it's it's May and they had um, finished the uh, investigation and, and given the family results and, and a media brief and all of that. And um, General Waldhauser, commander of AFRICOM, had gone on and told the media and everybody that this team was not indicative of what special operators do. So the guys were worried. They didn't want to speak to anybody. And I told them, well, that may be true, but I still want to know, A, what really happened because I was not given a detailed timeline of events on the ground by AFRICOM. What they told me in my um, brief and my family brief was a mixture of half truths and outright lies. And um, I wanted to know what actually happened minute by minute on the ground. I felt that I deserved that. And um, I, I knew I, the only place I was going to be able to get that was from these guys. And so what I told them was, hey, there's there's always a movie, a book, what about written about everything, you know, whether it's Benghazi, Lone Survivor, Black Hawk Down, there's always a book. So why would you hand a book and your story over to 
media who have already spent the last six months destroying you. Like, I think I can do this. Why don't you share it with me? And I'll write, you know, the events that happened on the ground and you guys can have some control over that. I can change your names. It'll be about you, not about me, not about what I want as an author or a journalist. Um, you know, so, so that's what it became about is like, let's tell your story and let's do it the right way. And, and I told them that until, um, I had a publisher, they could change their minds at any moment. And, um, if they wanted me to quit recording or they wanted me to remove their faces from my pictures in the book, I would. So that's kind of how we went about it. And initially they said they didn't want me involved because, um, they were just worried that, you know, somehow it would negatively impact me. But at that point, I told them, you know, I mean, my husband was already dead and, you know, they lied to me and a video of his death spread across every platform. At that point, what more could they do to me? I had nothing left to lose. And so um, the men did eventually agree. And so um, I sat down with not all of them, but most of them and went through um, minute by minute, one at a time of what happened on the ground. And what I got was completely different than what AFRICOM told me. Sure. That, that unfortunately the, your story as unique as it is, isn't unique in the, in the, I guess, concept is the word I'm looking for the, and, and I immediately think of Pat Tillman, um, who was the, the football player who ended up going special operations and, and was killed. Why do you think, why do you think the DOD does this? Why do you think they come up with their story and just say, this is what we're going with and, and push it on to the people push it on to the family push it on to the news like why do they do that i think what happens is i think that there are well the dod is a very large you know what i mean organization sure. so yeah. usually what we're talking about are a few specific individuals and the way promotions are done now it's not like if we have a problem individual if they have connections they don't just get pushed out okay they stay Right. But you have to become very political to reach a certain level as far as, you know, generals, etc. And so what I think happened is that there was an officer within this group that ordered this mission. And I think he's very well connected higher up to probably some three or four star generals. Okay. And because of that, my thought is in order to protect his career and keep him moving along, um, what he said was given more weight than what any of the guys on the ground said, because it was done in a way to protect him. Yeah, that, that I'm glad you explained it like that. That makes a lot of sense because the DOD is massive. So you have to trust whether they're reliable or not. You have to trust the people that you put in charge. And I guess they, they dictate the narrative, whether it's right or wrong. Um, I never thought of it that, that way. So I, I had a question here and it kind of answered it. So what is, you know, obviously you're, you're a gold star widow. You went through basically lies. Um, do you hold individuals accountable for that? Or do you hold the army army in general? Uh, are you in, I don't know, a good standing with, with the army in general? 
Oh, yeah. Or, or yeah, are they in good standing with you, I should say? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think I'm in good standing with them and, and they're in good standing with me. You know, I've, I've yeah. continued to be friends with um, the various uh, uh, USASOC generals and, and whatnot. But um, so like General Baudet is a friend of mine. Absolutely love him. He's a wonderful man. And and so, you know, and, and one of the men from the team worked with him for years. Um while he was, you know, head of USASOC. And, you know, yeah, I I really don't hold any ill will towards the Army, Special Operations, the DOD. For me, my biggest issue are individuals, you know, and, sure. and it's because they're acting out of self-centered, um, with self-centered motivations, really. And, you know, it, you're looking at these these men who are officers and they're supposed to be leaders and when it comes right down to it their their choices cost people their lives and their goal is to simply not let it affect their career they care more about protecting their career than being honest about what happened and growing from that and learning from that rather than they're more concerned about it like if they're honest about it that they might have their career affected. So they lie to me. Yeah. So that just blows my mind. Um, that's never okay. And, and I say throughout the book that I would rather just know the truth from the beginning. I didn't want anybody punished. All I wanted was the truth. But the minute everybody lied, then yeah, I have a problem and I think sure. anybody who lied needs to be held accountable at this point because that shows their character or lack of character and what they'd be willing to do to other people to simply continue up the chain of command simply for a career, which is insane. Um, I, I was part of a conversation where uh, 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 NCO was there when uh, one of his guys under his command were killed and he was wondering, he knew the story that had gone back, uh, accurate, but not, not to the point where it was exactly what happened. And he was wondering if he should go back and, and tell the parents exactly what happened. And we, we had this debate. Um, and I, I'm under the understanding that no, no matter how horrific or whatever that is, if it was my child or, or someone that was close to me, I would 100% because you just want to know that you're a loved one versus a painted picture of that. I, I, I don't know. What, what do you think um, if it wasn't so like with, with Brian where it was, I guess we could call it political because when you're talking about feel great officers and, and making rank, it becomes a political thing. But if it wasn't that, if it wasn't as controversial as it ended up and you got a basic picture of what happened and someone said, I actually have, you know, the, the actual details of what happened on there, what would you rather? You need to, the details. There's something about knowing every last detail that makes you finally go, okay, even if it's they suffered more than I initially thought they did. A lot of people right. think, oh, you want to be convinced that they died without suffering. And you do, but not if it's not true. Right. Yeah, you'd love to hear that. But do most people die without suffering? No. Mm -hmm. And what you want is you just want to, if you can, be there with him, even if it's just in mind, so sure. that you know what he went through. You just, you just need that. It brings you peace. 
not to mention for the soldiers themselves. You know, they want to know that their family knows, right? They don't want to think that there's some controversy or, or something. I'm sure it never entered uh, any of the guys of, of uh, uh, 3212, you know, that that would happen. Um, and hopefully the, the uh, experience and the, the situation as it unfolded becomes, was that sets precedence for any, you know, God forbid future situations like this that they actually handle it correctly. Unfortunately, when you look back in the past, though, I mean, there's just countless stories. Uh, and, and like I said earlier, Pat Tillman, um, Jesse Lynch, you know, these, these tales that you wonder why, why aren't we just telling the truth? It might not be as glorious, but, uh, it's important to the families because the sacrifice is, is, and ironically, that's the name of your book. The sacrifice is the, the life of the soldier, but it, it's so much more. It's so much more parents, kids, wives, spouses. I mean, yeah. What, yeah. Wh- what comes next for you in life? Well, a couple things. I mean, I would love to write more, um, maybe try my hand at fiction. But one huge thing that I'm hoping to do is I'm hoping that with this book, we can start bringing up conversations about how investigations are held and um, as well as how we make the decisions that lead to officers being promoted. Because how is it that an officer can lie and continue to be promoted. And um, how can an officer do a bad job and have people under him who absolutely hate them? I mean, say not just a few, because we're not always liked by everybody, right? Right, right. But if let's say you're doing such a bad job that the majority of your soldiers absolutely hate you. And when you're put in charge of them, there's major issues. Why is it that that officer can continue to move ahead because of connections they have or people they know? And that I think that's a huge thing that we see um, throughout history. And that's where the problems are when you get situations like the Niger ambush and you get the Pat Tillman. And, and, and there's so many. I talk to veterans all the time when I'm out and about with my book and they tell me stories. So mm-hmm. this isn't a rare occurrence, you know? Um, So what I'd like to see is some sort of reform in how these officers who are going to one day be generals and influence an entire nation, like these huge decisions, like how we withdraw from Afghanistan. I want to know, how can we reform the system that brings them up through the ranks to be these leaders? How can we, because we don't vote, how can we make that system better so we have better people in charge and so that when someone is a two-star or a three-star they don't decide to get out because they don't want to deal with the politics anymore let's Mm -hmm. take politics out of it and how can we take politics out of it i think by maybe starting with you know in sf there's something called, called peer evals and you cannot get through selection and you cannot get through the Q course unless you have been approved by that group of your peers through each section of the Q course. So they're anonymous evaluations and you simply take that person and every person through each section has to be evaluated by the group of people you've worked with. And rather than, and they do that with officers, but it's always the group of people in the officer levels, right? Yeah, and then exactly you can right. continue yep. on. So why is it that those that they're actually leading can't say, hey, 
this guy's horrible. He's done this to me. He's done that. Because when you start seeing a common thread, say 40% of the people that somebody's leading saying this guy should not be leading people. If you're seeing that, then that should be a huge indicator and that should be present before a board um, who is deciding, hey, should this guy be promoted or not? And it should like be taken into account. So I'm all about hopefully seeing changes like that take place where, hey, we, we now have an anonymous system where we go through and we require all these subordinates to rate and review an officer and he has to get, you know, say 60% or 70% approval before he can move up to his next um, rank. Yeah, that makes sense. It was very, our, our officer promotion boards and all that stuff was, it, it was horse crap. I mean, the, it, you couldn't write what you wanted to write. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's still the same. You had like pre-canned things that you could write and you know a civilian could read a report on a bad officer and think this officer's Audie Murphy this is the greatest guy in the world but uh someone who knows the lingo looks at it and says oh I see the code that's going on here and it's yeah that never made sense to me you know even it came down to like putting spaces at the end of what you write um or different code words it was crazy to me and I was like why can't you just write that this guy's a jerk and does not need a promotion um But we couldn't do that. We couldn't do that at all. And as you said that, I started kind of going through the old commanders that I, I served under. And there were some that, you know, we would gladly, you know, fly into the side of a mountain for. And then there were others that to this day, you know, I, I keep up with on, on Facebook and I see they've pinned on colonel or pinned on general. And it's like, God, I don't know how how they did that, except for the fact that they checked some boxes and they looked at a score and they said, OK, this this is the. This is where, and, and it's different. I think, you know, obviously flying is a, a different world than um, special forces, but uh, yeah, it sounds like ho- hopefully, hopefully there'll be a, an improvement of that, about that. Uh, let, let's bring it into full circle. We started with um, speaking about family. Uh, are you still part of the SF family? Do you uh, keep in touch with those people? Me and the team, we, you know, we talk pretty often, um, you know, I, I see them all the time and, and we keep a, you know, WhatsApp thread going where we, you know, send pictures and harass each other at least (laughs) once or five times a month, depending on what's going on. But, um, yeah, so I'm close with them and, you know, anywhere you're at, like even I did a, an author event recently at the local, um, library here and I'm over near JBLM now. And an SF guy showed up and the next thing you know, he's, yeah, come out and talk to the teams and, you know, come out to this and that. So, yeah, you you definitely, um, or I get connected the minute I meet any SF. It's it's like, oh, you're a, you know, an SF widow. So, yeah, come on in. So, yeah, yeah I stay def- well connected. It's definitely a tight community. Uh, over the past few years, just I, I befriended, I think I said at the beginning, um, uh, an SF guy and just seeing that whole world, it was like, we saw him jump out of the back of our airplane, but I never really got to stop and have, have conversations with them. Uh, how are your children doing? They're doing really well. Um, gosh, uh, they're 13 and 15 now. Um, okay. and they're, they look more and more like their dad 
every day. Yeah. My youngest, his face is just like his dad. And my oldest, his build. So he's already, he's 15, but he's six one. Wow. you know, almost, yeah, probably like 175 and yeah, just getting huge. So um, they're just, yeah, they're busy. I think yeah. moving them near their grandparents was the right choice. So grandpa takes them shooting and, and out just doing a million things. So the um, it's interesting because, uh, you know, a book is a snapshot, really, and out of a point in time. And in my head, I'm picturing these little kids uh, with that. Yeah. I mean, I guess 2017 is four years. Is it 17, 18, 19, 20? Yeah, 20. yeah it's for almost five years. Wow. And kids do this thing called growing, uh, which I'm learning with my two little ones. Um, and I want to end it off with a quote. And I, I wish I wrote where I heard you say this. Uh, maybe it was on. I don't remember where I read this, but you said that your life wasn't interesting enough to make a documentary. You were trying to talk Brian into talking to the cameras that were actually in Africa during that deployment. Do you still feel this way? Gosh, I, I don't know. You know, Brian, I think everything about him and his life and even the way it ended, I mean, is so radical. And because I got to be a part of that, then I guess it's not true, but it's all because of Brian. Yeah. You know, he was always, he was always interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm just kind of riding the coattails. So. <laughs> That's funny. Well, the book is Sacrifice a Gold Star Widows Fight for the Truth. I really, uh, I highly recommend everyone check that out. Um, and I assume you can get it anywhere, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, your, it's, your places. Um, yeah, I've got one right here. It's uh, it's on Amazon. It's on. Um, oh, my ring lights are making it hard to read. But, <laughs> Sorry, um... let's see if I can do it. Mine's all tabbed <laughs> out. Look, see, I I just kind of show you how much. That's why I miss doing these these interviews because I mean I had a stack of books there that I had to go through and take notes and all this stuff, and I, I really miss that because these conversations are very interesting, and I think uh, these stories you know, they can impact and, you know, wh whether I can get three or four other people to read this book, then that's three other four, three or four other people that can actually, uh, absorb this story. And, and who knows, who knows people, uh, the message gets sent, you know, over time. Well, I, I really, really appreciate you coming on. Uh, like I said at the beginning, if it wasn't folks like you that share your stories, then we wouldn't have this. And, uh, podcasts are, are everywhere we're, we're making big changes on our end um, going with the network soon which we're really looking forward to and I hope we can reach some people uh, with your story and I think we will and um, I appreciate your time I really appreciate you having me on I you know I mean I know I've done a lot of them but I never get tired of them I love speaking to everybody you know especially vets there's something special about getting to um, speak with vets it's always my favorite conversations so yeah i appreciate you having me on i was hoping my goal is always to not do the same thing <laughs> and i was hoping that we did something a little bit different um but i can't watch all your interviews so i don't know but i'm hoping we did a a little bit of different um we did this was, story. yeah no this was great it, it was quite a bit different so awesome. yeah all right well thank you very much all right thank all you right, take care you too